Child poverty is worsening, according to latest statistics. So what will be the effect of looming benefit changes and the government's promised, quote, tough love approach to beneficiaries? The latest child poverty statistics from StatsNZ show three out of nine measures of child poverty became worse in the year to the end of June 2023 including in two of the government's three official measures. 23,000 more children than the year before going without household essentials such as fresh groceries, doctor's visits and a good pair of shoes. 200,000 children live in households with less than half the median disposable income after housing costs. That's up by around 3%. On April the 1st, benefit increases will align with inflation rather than wage growth. And this means that in time, smaller increases to benefits than would otherwise have been the case. Add to this the government's promise to take a more punitive approach to beneficiaries it describes as tough love. Auckland University economist Associate Professor Susan St John spent decades researching poverty and government policy. Good morning, Susan. Morena, Catherine. So how much has child poverty worsened in these latest statistics, noting that to June last year? Well, as, as you have described, the figures are showing a substantial increase. But we have to be very careful because those figures are one to two years out of date by the time we hear about them. What we should have been doing is taking much more notice of what the NGO sector have been saying over the last couple of years, that things are getting worse. So the Salvation Army, the Auckland City Mission, Variety, Kids Can, um, food banks have been shouting this from the rooftops. But it seems like we only wake up when we get a figure. It's been a sharp turn, hasn't it? Is sharp reversal. Does it follow a period where there had been stability or some improvement in most measures of child poverty? Uh, Well, minor measures, um, minor improvements, not the step change that was necessary. Once the problem was identified in 2018, we had the Child Poverty Reduction Act, there should have been substantial transformative change. And if we had taken child poverty as seriously as we take the situation of the older part of the population and made sure that our policies were suitable, we would not be facing this situation. You're dubious about the data as well. Is this just because it is now, what, about eight months old uh, or longer? um, Or or is it just that you believe it still undercounts, Susan? Yes, um, it, it is a limited survey. There were difficulties with the survey during lockdown and the COVID period, and we've been aware of that. But also, it doesn't actually cover those children who aren't in um, proper residential accommodation, so those living in motels and in um, cars and uh, unsatisfactory accommodation. The very worst off, in other words, aren't concluded in the survey. So those are some of the reasons why it's, it's giving us a very limited view The other thing that it doesn't show, particularly when we look at the income measures, is the cumulative effect of poverty over time, which has eroded low-income balance sheets. And so people are further in debt. 
And as they have deficits, they don't have enough to pay for their basic living costs. They either have to borrow from work and income or, or get some kind of a grant or borrow from the private sector um, or go into debt with IRD. And the cumulative effect of that, of course, is that that has to be serviced. So the income has to go even further as the years go on and the deficits get bigger. Could we look at the measures? Uh, is it material hardship that is generally regarded by advocates as the most relevant or the most significant? Um, well, it is an important measure and it's interesting that we have the increase in material hardship in a time when we know that we've had an expansion of the charitable sector that have filled a lot of the gaps in terms of provision of some of the basics. And we know we've had a massive expansion of the food bank sector. So material <clears throat> poverty going up is, is a very serious indicator. <clears throat> The other subject of debate, and I'm sorry to sort of talk about numbers and statistics and data, but, but there are children represented by them, is whether you're looking at 60% of median after-household costs or 50%, etc., or 40%. 150,000 children live in households who exist on 40% of the median income after housing costs, 300,000 trying to exist on less than 60% of median after household costs, housing costs, but beg your pardon. What does that translate to in terms of a child's life? When we're using that median income as a yardstick for what you can reasonably live on. Well, you're referring to three of the supplementary measures which relate to the current median household income. So they give a good indication of relative living standards. And uh, you mentioned the numbers. There's actually 340,000 children in households on less than 60% of the after-housing after, after costs um, household income. But the important thing when we're thinking about poverty is not just to look at the bland numbers like that, but to drill down how far are those children away from the poverty line. If they're very close, well, we've got less of a problem. But what we find is that we've got 237,000 on less than 50% and 150,000 on less than 40%, excuse me. And so what I'm trying um, to get at is, as an indicator of the situation those households are living in and the reality of their lives, you know, what, well, is that a very high number to have? It's a very yeah. high number. It's extremely concerning. And that uh, number under the 40% line hasn't really substantially changed since 2018. Um and that's an extreme level of income deprivation. When looking at why poverty has worsened, particularly in the year to June 2023, by that stage we are starting to see the cost of living crisis impact, interest rates, high interest rates impact on mortgages and, and also on rents, which are increasing at record rates at the moment. One supposes that this is a key driver and also that things have only got worse between June last year and now. 
Yes, it's, that's right. And, and that's what we've been hearing from the NGO sector very loudly. You have long campaigned for the Working for Families in-work payment to be extended to beneficiary families. It's obviously called the in-work payment because it is posited as an incentive to work rather than be on a benefit. Did you get anywhere in the argument that the children of beneficiary families need that extra cash as much as anyone else? Unfortunately, no. Under both National and Labor, we've had this belief that paid work is the only work that matters and people have to get a job and off the benefit completely. So it's not even paid work done in association with getting a part benefit that that isn't valued. You must be off the benefit. The benefit is somehow morally bad. It's that kind of philosophy that's been underlying the lack of progress that we've seen in the reform of working for families. That working for families has been thought to be about pushing people into paid work or encouraging people to get into paid work. The way that it is operated is that the in-work tax credit has been denied to the very poorest families, many of whom do not have any opportunity to make that leap into full-time paid work. You're getting to an important point, Susan, and um, I, I noted Tim Hazeldean writing about this yesterday as well. This this kind of you must work, you must you must work, and we know from statistics that working households children in working households um, on balance will be financially better off than those on benefits, although the, the, the number of working households, including working multiple jobs, now impacted has been on the rise. But does the system on the one hand say get into work uh, um, while raising children and on the other hand not facilitate that? Where are we at with things like abatement rates, with being able to take on some more part-time work without ending up being worse off than staying out of work? Where are we at? This is absolutely the irony of what they're saying. It's all very well to say get into a full-time low-paid job. But with chi- with childcare costs and transport costs and all the other costs, yeah? Well, well, certainly, but if you are on a very low income, let's say a household income of 42700 because that's the threshold for working for families. If you earn another 10000 say you took on part-time work or, or overtime work or, or made a huge effort to get that extra 10000 you're not only paying tax um, on that, but you're losing 27% of that 10000 in repayment of of working for families, that's a huge loss. And then, of course, many parents are also repaying student loans. So that's another $1,200 out of that $10,000. Um, and some are also repaying accommodation supplement because of extra income, another $2,500. So, it, it, you know, that, that extra five. A ten thousand can quickly disappear. Yes, and as we said, you may also be paying extra for childcare or other costs. This is at a time, Susan, where we have 
slightly increased unemployment, but still historically low unemployment. And what we do know from those statistics, 4% is the headline at the moment, is that there is a significant amount of underemployment. There are people working part-time who would work more hours if they could. And again, are, are we putting people in a situation where they may want to work, but they will find themselves under the current system, financially worse off by taking on some work? Well, they will be extremely discouraged. Um, And this is a very hidden problem that governments with a national labour have been unwilling to address. So that fixed threshold I talked about, that 42,700, has been in place since 2018. It should be about 53,000. If it had been indexed from the beginning of working for families to wages, it should be about 63000 So what we've done with New Zealand superannuation is to make sure that it's properly indexed, every aspect of it. We haven't paid the same attention to the financial support for children. The benefit changes that are coming through now on April 1st, Labour had made the move to link benefit increases um, to, just help me here, to inflation rather than to job growth. It was the other way around. I've just got confused. Yes, Labour were wage indexing. Wage indexing. They were going to move to wage indexing, right? Which, to your point, what National has now done is, is change that plan back to a linking to inflation. And at the moment, with moderately high historical inflation, some may find they're better off. However, as in, as inflation and as interest rates and, and, and the Reserve Bank's action forces inflation down, they're going to be worse off. Some estimates I've seen, Susan, 7,000 more children will go into these um, poverty measures as a result of that move alone. Is that correct? Well, it'll be around that figure, I guess, but we know the predictions are that there is a, a substantial saving which means that families are going to get less. And you have to ask the question, if we had indexed New Zealand super just to inflation, imagine the elder poverty that we would be facing today. That's been the thing that has protected them. I know it has been said that the wage indexation was one of the best things that could be done to help child poverty. One of the problems was that when Labour brought it in, the level of benefits were way too low to start with. So certainly the indexation was a, was a big step forward, but it didn't address the problem that um, the incomes were just too low to start with. How do you reflect on Labour's six years in office on this issue, including the introduction of that legislation? Well, I would have to say I'm personally extremely disappointed. We were promised welfare reform. We were promised a review of working for families. We were promised that they would change the purpose and principles of the Social Security Act that enshrine paid work. Now, all of those things were consulted on. There were many documents produced, lots of unpaid time from the NGO sector in consultations. But the process became so convoluted and spread out that we didn't get any changes 
with Labour more or less pushing it off to after the election, which of course now is too late. With the new government, and bearing in mind that the cost of living crisis uh, has only got worse since June last year and has some way to go, uh, if the Reserve Bank's determination um, is anything to go by, um, and inflation remains stubborn, but also um, those those costs on uh, on housing, on mortgages which flow through to rents, uh, look set to stay up for a while. If you look at the current government's policies, what do you see as the trajectory of these statistics going forward? Remembering, of course, there are hundreds of thousands of children behind these statistics, but what do you see as the trajectory going forward? Well, Catherine, let's go back to when National came in in 1991 and attacked the welfare state and reduced benefits. What we saw after that was an explosion in child poverty. Now, they in the period they were in 2008 to 2017, they also went down that paid work is the only way out of poverty route and did some terrible things. So while it's softly, softly at the moment, um, and it doesn't sound terribly draconian what they've announced, we can see what direction that they're going in. And if we revisit history and we look at the patterns, it's looking extremely alarming. If they are determined, the incoming government's determined on, on a work pathway out of poverty, what ought it do with its own policies? And let's come back to what you were telling us earlier. If you take on a job that gives you even $10,000 a year more, it basically dissipates by the time you do tax and working for families refunds, rebate refunds. What part of that, what part of that policy would they have to address in your view if it were to have a chance of having an impact? Oh, well, certainly to have an impact, what they should do is not worry about tax cuts. They're not going to have much of a change at all for the people that we're talking about, but they should increase the threshold for working for families immediately. Um, 53,000 would be appropriate. And they should reduce the rate of abatement. 27% abatement is far too high. It used to be right back at the beginning of working for families, 20%. It's 20% in Australia. Um, that draconian measure was actually introduced by Labor, uh, and it certainly was a backward step. So that that's one thing that if they're really serious about encouraging work, that they would put as a priority. Thank you. Susan St John, a long-time child poverty and poverty researcher uh, and campaigner. She's an economist. She's an associate professor, I beg your pardon, at Auckland University.